Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And today we have a special guest, Becca Ribbing. She is in the process of moving from Seattle to St. Louis, Missouri, which I'm very familiar with being in the Midwest. Uh, Becca, I'm excited to have you on the show. I know you um, have something called the Clarity Journal, and I'm very interested in talking about journaling uh, as that's uh, kind of a lost art these days. Uh, and I think I think a lot of people that are successful, uh, I know, keep journals. So anyway, thanks for coming on to the show. And um, I, uh, I'm excited about talking with you. So again, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. We're having a few technical glitches today. So uh, right now it's looking pretty good. So uh, so what we're going to do today is I just want to navigate a little bit about your passions and kind of the things that that you're excited about. I know you're into coaching and on your profile, uh, coaching can be pretty subjective. That can mean a lot of things. Um, I think of coaching like more of a, uh, of a life coach, um, right. where there's motivational coaching, there's athletic coaching, there's different types of coaching, but am I right in saying that, that you're, you would be more defined as a, as a life coach? I kind of, I focus on career mostly like the people who find me and love me have a tendency to be trying to figure out what they want to do next with their lives. So we do definitely get into life stuff because work-life balance is a really big issue for so many people. And, you know, passion and purpose really is your life, you know? So there is a lot of, I feel like I am holistic. Maybe that's the best way to put it. <laughs> I hear that word a lot. I wonder if it's often sometimes misunderstood or overused because I think a lot of people maybe think of that as more you know, incense and woo woo and candles. And, you know, uh, I think there's a connotation that it's, you know, kind of more spiritual planning and, and that may be right. correct, but how would you define the word holistic? Oh, I mean, in that term, in that sense, I was really just going with like, I really do integrate career with the rest of your life. Um, okay, so, so I was kind of moving. Approach. Yeah. I wasn't really thinking of it in terms of woo woo, but you know, I think that there is also this negative connotation where we talk about things being woo-woo when they're really just balanced. It's like we are mm -hmm. so pushed to one end in our society of like productivity and making sure that everything you're doing is moving you forward, where as soon as we start talking about work-life balance or like making yourself happy or if we start talking about self-care all of those things end up having a woo-woo label on them simply mm -hmm. because they're not type A. And so I think that I now I'm on, I, this is the first I've ever articulated this, but now I'm on a mission to take back like holistic as just a normal word that you should be really aiming for. <laughs> well, you said earlier two of my favorite words and that's uh, purpose and passion. Mm -hmm. And I have a quote that's on the back of our t-shirts. It's my tagline on the living undeterred tour purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And I heard someone say that one time about, well, we normally don't care about things until it hits home. And, and that is so true. And so this purpose becomes passion when it gets personal is kind of my way to help people because that, that's a question we ask ourselves all the time is, you know, what, what is my purpose? You know, what is my, is right. my purpose to raise kids? Is my purpose to show my kids how to live an inspired life or is my purpose to build a company 
in spite of everything around me, is my purpose to become infinitely wealthy and to build an organization? Or is my purpose to take care of my dad as he ages? You know, we, we all kind of gravitate to different purposes, but I think it, it's really defined when it gets personal, when something hits home. And I know in my case, people to follow my story, our son died of a heroin overdose uh, five years ago at the age of 23 uh, with fentanyl. And then I buried my wife eight months ago. Uh, the grief of losing a child um, was a mountain too tall for her to climb and too high for her to climb. So, you know, I went through that and that made that made things really personal for me. So my my passion in helping others improve their mental health, I have a limitless tank of energy that I, that I'll never run out of. I may run out of money. I may run out of time, but I ain't going to ever run out of passion. And that's something that I think we all have. I think you have it. I think your clients have it. I think everybody, you know, has it. It's whether we can cultivate it, we can nurture it. We can find that burning fire inside of all of us. And maybe as a coach, that's what you try to do with people is help them find their why. Yeah. And also be comfortable with really going after their why, because I find that a lot of people do know their why, or they have an inkling of it, but they hold themselves back from it because they either don't feel worthy or they just aren't feeling secure with going after it. There's something holding them back. Uh, and I, I often think of myself as a permission giver, not that anyone ever needs permission to go after their purpose or their passion, but that they need that permission. They need the, like internally, they need the confirmation that what they're doing doesn't sound crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard because a lot of times our friends and family want us keep us safe. Right. And they want us, they have their own ideas of what we can and can't do. And sometimes we listen to them a little too much. And sometimes we worry a little too much about what they're going to think. And so I really kind of consider myself a impartial listener. And I just ask the deep questions to really help people figure out whether they're being honest with themselves Hmm. I think there's a lot to do with, you know, getting people out of a rut, getting them honest with themselves, but keeping them on top. You know, right. we talk a lot about dieting and losing weight is that's the easy part. The hard mm-hmm. part is keeping it off. You know, it's easy to start a journal, write your thoughts down. And the hard part is how do you interpret that? How do you make your life better? And And not just your life, but those people around you. I think that's one of the dynamics of living an intentional life is that you bring other people up around you. It's one thing when you're, let's say, profiting off people that are around you. It's another when you, you know, bring them up. And I think that's, that's something that's not talked about a lot um, because we're in such a monetized commodity driven society that we're always thinking about how we can make money off of something. And I think if you find something you're really passionate about and you put, you're all into it. I think the money will find itself. I think, I, I, I think a lot of good business ideas are spawned from passionate people that never started off thinking about starting a business, you know, right. it just kind of revealed itself. So what do you think are the top reasons why people are struggling with their happiness today? I mean, I have my, my opinions, but what are the two or three things that you see kind of, uh, 
you know, kind of you see in, in most people that are similar issues right. that they're having with their personal happiness. So I think a big theme is not necessarily being comfortable with going after their own happiness. You know, it's especially once you hit a certain age and have kids, there really is a culture of settling and, and sometimes settling is fine, but anyone who's listening to this podcast is interested in personal development, personal growth. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested in personal development, personal growth, settling is not going to feel good. And I think a lot of times what happens is if someone isn't following their purpose, they've settled and they've been kind of encouraged to settle, not maybe explicitly, but implicitly, both by their bosses or their coworkers, their friends, their family. And I think that it's really hard to push yourself forward when in a lot of ways we're getting messages of, you know, just settle. Like we're getting messages of from our boss, like, hey, please don't get another job right now. I can't promote you. I can't like give you a raise. I can't give you the job you want, but I'd really hate to lose you. Like it puts on like also guilt. I think there's sometimes mm. some guilt in there. But I think that the big thing is busyness. Everyone is so busy. And yeah. Yeah. you know, and we don't ever have to sit with ourselves anymore. Um, you know, like Well, we can't anyway. Right. We can't, but I mean, even if we had three minutes in line at a grocery store, we just gravitate to our phone. And so I think that we underestimate just how much more time people used to spend in their own mind. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that we do to counteract this, like a lot of things that we do to like replenish ourselves from the fact that we are constantly on are things like yoga and meditation. And all those yeah. things are really lovely. And I'm a huge proponent of both. Yeah. However, it's a really about like letting your mind go. So there's really no structured point in time where you're sitting there really actually trying to access what you're thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's where journaling, I think, comes in because it really helps you get into the habit of sitting with yourself. And I don't know. I remember very, very strongly, probably the only thing I got out of my don't do drugs health class in high school was the teacher was talking about how when you quit smoking, if you quit smoking, uh, to always have something in your hand, like a pencil or oh, a toothpick sure. or have something yeah. that, I mean, nowadays they'd probably tell you like, get a fidget toy. <laughs> um, yeah. And that made so much sense to me. I didn't smoke at the time. I never have smoked, yeah. but um the way she explained it was that you just need some, you're used to having something in your hand and if you have yeah. something in your hand you won't be as likely to pick up the cigarette. Yeah. Well, the same thing goes for if you are just sitting there like having a quiet moment thinking and you find yourself continuously getting distracted, the journal actually gives you something in your hand. It doesn't replace yep. a cigarette, it replaces your phone. Right. And so I think there's something very important about sitting with yourself and thinking, and I don't, I, I'd be the first to say it doesn't have to be journaling, but I think so many of us are kind of addicted to this constantly having something in our hands. So journaling helps bring both sides of yourself in. Like you can be quiet with yourself. You can be really meditative while also actually 
really like shining a light, looking at the mirror about what's going on within. I do like that with the pen and the smoking uh, story because I choose not to drink alcohol and Mm -hmm. I don't call myself sober because that implies that I'm in this big fight with this thing out there that's trying to get me to drink. And I just don't, I don't play those narratives. So I just, I just don't drink like today. I'm just not going to drink, but it's been four years. It's been pretty easy for me, but I drink non-alcoholic beer Mm -hmm. and I drink three a night. And I've got a fridge full of the world's greatest IPAs, wheats, uh, ales, just, I mean, the, the non-alcoholic beer space is just amazing. And then I just started drinking non-alcoholic wine. Now you may say, well, wait a minute, Jeff, that's just grape juice. Well, there is a company that I found online and I order, I got a bunch of bottles and it's actually, it's actually quite good. Uh, it's not a high calorie. It's not high sugar. Um, I drink like a glass a night and it's, and it's the same reason why the person would have the pen to kind of distract their addiction, you know, Mm -hmm. into this pen becomes like a placebo. Well, to me, and I've get, I get pushback from people on this, you know, Jeff, well, you shouldn't be talking about non alcoholics do not need to be in bars. They don't. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. That's for some people that have problems with this stuff. I, I'm not judge and jury. I certainly know less than m- majority of the people out there on this topic. I'm just telling what works for Jeff Johnston. That's all I can do. I'm not, I'm not preaching to people. I enjoy the psychological aspect of coming home, having a cigar in my deck, cracking open an ice cold beer, sipping it out of a frosty mug, watching TV, talking to my friends on the phone. And the fact that it doesn't have alcohol to me is just a, a non-issue. It's just so, it's, it's so comforting for me to do that. And then before I go to bed, I have a glass of my red fake wine and it works for me, you know? And, and I, I just think if we can, as people who are addicted to certain things, find distractions like that, that are healthy, um, then who, 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 who is to say, this isn't what you should do, Jeff. You know, I think that's one of the problems is this whole addiction, substance abuse, even the mental health industry is that there's too many people pushing widgets you know, that have the answers to everything. And it's like, you got to find, you know, I don't do yoga. I, 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 that's the one thing I don't do. I meditate 20 minutes every day. I mind, I mindfulness practice. I'm a stoic philosopher a little bit, but yoga is just something I just haven't maybe because I just don't think I'm flexible enough. Um, I just see the pictures of people bending over backwards and it terrifies me, but I understand that's not really what yoga is, but anyway, my whole point of this rambling is just to validate the point you made about distracting ourselves from the society norms of addiction, all these things that we have to fight with. And I'm on this quest as you are to try to get people to enjoy their lives better. I mean, we're the most abundant society in the history of humans, yet we are the most down, depressed, anxious, unhappy, especially America. Than we've ever been. I mean, we're like, I don't know what the number is. is we're like 60% obese as a country. I mean, how, how can you enjoy things if you're, first of all, not taking care of your health? I mean, a lot of our issues we have with our health or self, you know, it's things you can control by just what you eat, you know? Um, anyway, I just, I'm just trying to figure out ways to help people enjoy their lives better. And it seems to me there are just many, many multifaceted areas of this that we could be, we could be dealing with. 
Well, I think sometimes experts like want to push their philosophy. And so it, it becomes this should like you should do this. You should not drink. You should not, you know, do X, Y, Z. And, and I think in the addiction realm, a lot of it's pushed by AA, which isn't necessarily yeah. totally scientifically backed up. Like they, it's, I mean, it's been around since the 1930s and they haven't really changed like to, to into, yeah. I'm going to end up getting flamed after saying this, but they haven't necessarily no, changed. Oh, there's a lot of pushback on it. Harm reductions become a really big thing. And I think, um, uh, right. there is a lot of pushback on, on AA. I know my wife didn't want to go just because of the, um, the emphasis on God. Um, right. That's, that's what turned her off. And I know AA's now adapted that. Now they have a higher power type emphasis. But yeah, you're right. I think there's lots of things out there that people are utilizing that should be either revisited, whether they're practical today in modern times. You know, you're right. AA's pretty old and has not really been adapted to or changed too much. But right. um, anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. I I just feel like the shoulds, what you, the only should that you should follow is, does it work for me? And Mm -hmm. I think that that's where, when we talk about mindfulness practices and such, we start really going down this rabbit hole of other people telling us how to get in touch with ourselves. We go down Mm -hmm. this rabbit hole of, Having other people tell us what is right, and I think that it comes up in addiction. It comes up, certainly comes up in self health, self help, and mental health realms. And I don't know. So I learned how to meditate when I was twelve years old. Um, oh wow! I, I learned. Awesome. From, it was really awesome. I learned from a thirteen year old girl. I was living in New Jersey. I was quite the geek. <laughs> and thirteen—that's um, you don't hear a lot about that at that age. No, so. This 13-year-old girl was from California, spoke, I mean, she looked like she was straight out of a movie. Long blonde hair, spoke, I mean, talked like a Californian, she's from LA, super cool. And she was visiting her aunt and we spent, she was there for a week or two and we spent a lot of time just sitting around and talking. And one day she, we were talking and she was telling me about how, I think a Buddhist monk had come into her school and taught them how to meditate. Hmm. And literally all she said was you sit cross-legged, you put your hands on your knees and you visualize the breath going in and you visualize your breath going out. And that Hmm. was the extent of my meditation training until I was in college. And, you know, it was so powerful because there's no shoulds there. Like there's no... 300 page book on beginner's mindfulness, like with all of these different things that you're like thinking about. But as I said, I was a very geeky kid, still pretty geeky. And I was like, I'm going to be like Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And so I telepathy and you can move things with your mind and yeah. And you know, so I started meditating very consistently. I wouldn't say every day, but the lovely thing is, is there was no set a timer. There was no, you have mm-hmm. to do it for 20 minutes or you have to do it for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it really has given me this very clear sense that sometimes as adults, we overcomplicate things. We make sometimes, it. 
Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> I'd say majority of the time. Yeah. Right. And so when we overcomplicate <clears throat> things for ourselves, we lose touch with ourselves. Um, I often, when I'm talking about clarity, I often talk about how, you know, so much has changed in our world. And yet a lot of times we look at clarity, like we're still back in the 1950s. We look at life mm-hmm. purpose, like we're back in the 1950s. Like right. I'm going to find out what my life purpose is, and that's going to be my life purpose until I retire. And that's fantastic. Like I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it ends up being a letdown because even if you do get that clarity and really go for it and get like a great job or start a great business, two to three years later, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later, you're going to hit a wall where you've grown as much as you can in that iteration. And a lot of times what ends up happening when you hit that wall is that you start feeling bad, but you can't really pinpoint it. And you start kind of waffling back and forth about what you want to do. You have a tendency to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, okay, I'm going to like blow things up and mm-hmm. go do something completely different. And then you're like, oh, maybe I didn't really know my purpose. Maybe that clarity wasn't really clarity. And so a lot of what I end up working with people on is like strategies for how to remind yourself that if you're starting to feel bad about where you are, if you're starting to feel restless or anxious, that that's actually part of the process of continuing to find clarity and purpose because your clarity and purpose are always going to grow unless you are a very static person and static people don't usually listen to self-help um, podcasts. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are people out there like that and I would never say that they should do anything differently, but for people who really value personal growth, that purpose is always going to be growing. And I think that that's where people get off track because maybe they did think that they knew their purpose when they were in college, or maybe they did think they knew their purpose when they started XYZ business. It just needs to keep growing with you. So when you keep a clarity journal, uh, do you go back Mm -hmm. and reread it or do you just write it with the purpose of uh, getting your thoughts on paper and then you move on? I know, um, I, it's, I kept a diary when I was in high school and I noticed I never really went back and ever read. It was more just therapeutic to get the words out of my mind onto a piece of paper. But is a clarity journal kind of that way or do, is it recommended as a coach that when you write down these things that you go back and read them and make sure you're checking off the things you accomplished? and Or is it more just a therapist for you? So I... I wrote it because I was talking to a friend and I was in the middle of my own point where I had hit a period of growth and I really needed to switch things up. It it was getting boring and static. And so I was talking to a friend and doing the waffling, going back and forth about like, what am I doing next? And this was probably like the fifth or 10th time I had talked to her about it. And my friend is wonderful. And I, she was basically like, Becca, you're a coach. What would you tell yourself? I wanted to hit her, <laughs> you know, like I did. It's like, right. you're right. I am a coach. I should know this, but we all struggle with keeping, maintaining, finding clarity, continuing to grow. And so I very quickly got off the phone with her and 
as I was sitting, I just started writing down every question I have asked clients that I could remember that helped them get an aha moment, helped them find the answer for themselves. And I sat down and just wrote all the questions down. I wrote, I think, 30 down um, like within like half an hour. And then I went back and started answering them. And so I think the clarity journal really is for those pivot points in your life where you're mm-hmm. starting to feel yourself flag, when you're starting to feel like your momentum isn't really there, or when you know that you're unhappy about something and you're just not sure which direction you're going to go in. Um, it really is just like a hundred writing prompts and quotes that help kind of get your own brain in gear. Because a lot of times when you're stuck, you end up staying stuck because of your rote thinking. You're like, I, mm-hmm. you, you think about the problem over and over again in the same way. And so when you're asking like, do you keep doing it? Do you go back to it? Well, I had the lovely um, experience of, I wrote the clarity journal. And so I had to edit it about five times. And so I've reread it and redone it five times. And I think that each time, even if I was feeling pretty good, I always got something new out of it. Um, so I think that it's really to help you regain the momentum and clarity that you feel like you're lacking. Uh, however that looks to you and, you know, you can just go through and do it all in order. You can skip around. I'm a big believer in skipping around because I think that when you skip around, you find the I questions too. that really need to yep. be answered. Um, yeah. But it's to help you get out of your own head. And it's basically what coaching is. When you're coaching someone, or at least for me, when I am coaching someone, I'm just asking a lot of questions. And those questions end up helping them like go down the rabbit holes that they've been wanting to go down, but that their brain has kind of held them back from. So I think that the biggest aspect of the clarity journal is to not get too bogged down in shoulds and to really let yourself flow with wherever your mind wants to go and not worry about whether it's right or wrong. You got me thinking about my previous life when I was in the investment business, cause I started in when I was 23 and then, um, with the recent life events I've had, I've kind of walked away from that career, but there was a big shift in my industry about, I've been doing it 32 years. So about halfway through, there was a big emphasis on what's called behavioral finance, where Mm -hmm. our industry shifted away from the numbers, you know, shifted away from, you know, looking at everything from a, a, a quantifiable lens and more of a, quality lens. And so we went from number crunching to all these fancy computer financial planning software systems to more feel felt found questions. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I understand how you feel. Others have felt the same way I have found. And that's kind of our thing that we learned in my early sales classes is how we could get things out of people is, and again, that was in the investment business. So even that industry saw the, the, the value of having human intimate conversations with people. And so, you know, what you're doing in in the coaching is similar, but you're just not talking about money. You're, you're asking similar questions, but the emphasis isn't on your retirement plan. It's on your life plan, you know, which is, I always, I said for many years, uh, Becca, that the most successful 
clients I had were the mm -hmm. ones that had figured out the financial and the emotional aspect of retirement. You could have all the money in the world, but if you're a, a, a emotional wreck, substance abuser, liar, cheater, deceptive, whatever, then the money doesn't, it doesn't offset how, how your pain is. I mean, look how many rich people commit suicide yeah. and then you flip flop it and you go, well, let's say you have the greatest confidence and you're happy and you love your life, but you're broke. You literally can't drive to the grocery store. I'm being overly dramatic, but I think there's the perfect retirement is that person or, or persons that has mastered the financial and the emotional aspect of the, of the money, the retirement journey. And, uh, I, I think there's, there's some truth in that. Yeah. Well, and I think that that often comes back down to self-love, right? Mm -hmm. Like it being financially, what's the word? Being financially good to yourself, like setting yourself up for retirement. I actually, right before I got on here, read, um, this person on, it was like a Facebook post. I'm in some finance groups and she had, she posted that, um, she had just come into some inheritance and what should she do with it? She's not planning on ever retiring because she likes her job. <laughs> so she's going to do something else with the money. And I was like, ah, like you can't, you can't know whether you're going right. to have to retire. You know, it was just right. so like, it, it like almost made me anxious, but like, I think that a lot of people who do have high net worths are still meeting, missing that self-love piece. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. without the self-love piece, the money doesn't fix that. People who are broke feel like the money is going to fix it. But mm -hmm. money doesn't fix that ever. And you're right. Rich people commit suicide. I work with, I work with people who have like Ivy League degrees, like math, like multiple Ivy league degrees who are still insecure. You know, I have people who have had like million dollar bonuses who are still insecure about their mm -hmm. value and their worth. Like the money doesn't actually fix that. I think there's a natural expectation or kind of evolution of humans is that we set a goal and we get there and we're like, okay, nothing happened. You know, I, right. so I set a goal to be a millionaire. Boom. I hit it. It's like, nothing happened. Okay. I set a goal, lose 50 pounds. I hit it. I feel better, but then I slowly start re realizing that once that goal was achieved, I need to have another goal. And that's, that's, uh, that can be an addiction in itself. If you, if you're somebody who just can never, I, I teach my two boys all the time that when you have moments of success, enjoy them. Right. enjoy them, you know, for my son who golfs, you know, you have a, a great round milk, milk the hell out of it. Enjoy it because right. the next round could be your worst round of your career. And you know how miserable you're going to feel. And it's like, we're always one phone call away from our life changing. Yeah. We're, we're, we're literally one moment away from a car accident of a loved one of like my son overdosed on fentanyl. Right. The day I got that call 10 seconds before I got that call, my, my life was one, one thing. And then 10 seconds later, my life was never the same. And we live on that. We live, we live knowing that, but when these things happen, our fact we're unprepared is what sets us back. And so I'm trying to teach people 
the three foundations of the living undeterred mindset. To me, I think if people can focus on these three things, that when the inevitability of things happen in our lives, which so far nobody's learned to get through life unscathed. I mean, everybody's going to have something crappy happen either to you, uh, someone you love, or eventually you're going to die. Um, but the three foundations are expectations, having what I call realistic expectations with things just as death. I mean, it's going to happen. Preparedness, get your mind, body, and soul prepared for the inevitability of crappy things happening because if they're coming down the road, it's unavoidable. We know it in advance, yet when they happen, we're, it, it set back, like it cost my wife her life because of the inability to be prepared and to expect terrible things. And when they happened, you know, it just, it, it, it unwound her and it happens to millions of people. Then the third is the evolution. And that's the evolution of self. That's, that's our ability to shed skin, our ability to say, all right, my son died. He is now part of my, he's part of my soul. He's part of my story. As I go on and continue telling our story as a family, he's still part of that story. Even though he's not here creating his own legacy, I'm creating it for him. My wife's the same way. She can't create her legacy anymore, but we certainly can by talking about her. So right. this, th these three foundations, I think if each human could embody realistic expectations, expect the best, prepare for the worst, and have evolution of self, be willing to change your mind with evidences presented that it's okay. It's okay for a man to cry. It's okay for, yeah. it's okay for me to be vulnerable on an airplane with the person sitting next to me without annoying them. I could yeah. talk about my son in an honorable way and not looking for pity. That's one thing I, right. one thing I'm really interested in is when I listen to people talk about things that have happened to them, there's a subset that are really looking for sympathy and pity. Mm -hmm. And then there's a subset that are looking to make a, to make a, a life altering moment for people, you know, to give them inspiration. Yeah. I certainly embrace empathy and compassion from people that want to give me comfort. I'm not looking for pity. If I want to pity, I'll just get another freaking dog. I mean, I, I don't need that in my life. And it's like too many right. people that have had something traumatic happen to them, I think really are looking for sympathy and pity. And I think as humans, we need to get away from ever wanting pity and sympathy. I just think those are really, those, those are just not things that fill my tank. Right. Well, and I think that a lot of times when someone wants sympathy or pity, it means that they're stuck kind of in the base of, you know, the, you talk about the is it four or five stages of grief. Um, Actually, I think Kubler-Ross had like six, but okay, great. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> but I don't believe it. I think that, had, that, that we could go on. I wrote a whole thing on this because, and they're not even in the same order. Stages right. of grief are all there. It's all out of order. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that there is like a, I don't know, I'm going to end up using a woo-woo word, but not really meaning it woo-woo. <laughs> like there's an energetic level, like there are energetic levels to how far you've, like how much you've processed your grief. And I 100 think people, agree, yep. and people who are <laughs> stuck in those really tough, you know, stuck stages where mm -hmm. there it's really intense like that the only real um they only have access to wanting that sympathy and pity because the higher energy ones they just they can't yeah. get there yet i don't know how i can bring this up without hurting people's feelings but and you probably see this too i see this a lot because i'm in a lot of groups 
uh, especially on Facebook, that are geared towards parents that have lost kids. Yeah. And I understand the utility behind the need to be in a group of people similar to what you've been through. But man, it's hard for me to be in these groups very long. Uh, and, and, and a lot of it are, are, are the moms and I get mm-hmm. it. Um, I, I wish my, my wife, well, let's just say my, my wife kind of did her own thing like that without being in a Facebook group where she right. would play, you know, songs all day long of, of that made her think about him. And I would come home and say, you know, Prudence, why, why, why do we have to listen to these songs? I mean, every t- you're crying all the time. It's like, I'm not asking you to move on, but, but there's life to live. There's, there's, we have, you know, I, I don't ever want to say anything negative about my wife. She was an absolute rock star, the greatest human being I ever met in my life. She was beautiful. And the death of a child just changes everything for everybody. Yet that clinging on to that grief, I think for people in these groups that I'm in, I feel sorry in a way for them sometimes because I think they are looking for sympathy and pity. I don't really think they're looking for empathy and compassion. I don't think they're looking to move on. I I think they... It's become a, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that, and again, I understand, I'm never going to say stop doing it. I'm just saying, how can you expect to move on and, and to evolve when you're stuck repeating that traumatic event constant, you know, every moment of every day. And so I can only be in some of these rooms for a very short amount of time, Becca. And I just have to, I can't even comment anymore because it's just, um, it's, it's depressing. I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know another word. I mean, if I brought in 10 parents that have lost children and we sit around for an hour and, and there isn't some progression towards some happier moments instead of just having to go back all the, I I don't know how to say it. And I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it sucks being a parent to lose a child. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's indescribable. And then, and then to lose a wife on top of it is again, indescribable yet. There has to be a better way to look at this. There has to be a better road to get on um, because the other road is just, is another road doesn't, that road doesn't interest me that the negative bitter road doesn't interest me. And I'm trying to get out and talk to these people and I'm afraid to breach these conversations. I think I'm going to hurt their feelings. I think they're going to say, well, they can't say you don't understand. They can't play that card because <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I can certainly relate to what they're going through, but I just, I want to, I want to pull these people out of that well in a, in a good way and respect the pain they're in, but I don't want to give them pity. I, I don't want to give them sympathy. Yeah. I just think that's not helping them any, I, I don't know. Am I making any sense? Um, in You're these making I mean, total sense. And I think that, uh, I mean, I have not gone through that. Yeah. Um, and however, I do know people who have, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, especially the moms, they don't want to get over it. You know, if they mm-hmm. get over getting over it is too scary. It's too, there's a guilt it's associated too- with it. And moving on you know, with your life is huge. Yeah, and, and I would talk to my wife a lot, Becca, and I would say, you know, do, do you feel guilty if you laugh? Do you feel guilty if you cry? I mean, do you feel guilty if you um, talk to someone about their kids and not bring up yours? I mean, is there a way to 
live your life and not feel guilty. And I, I went through that for a long time. I, I had, I had lots of guilt uh, yeah. about things I could have intervened and got into. But I think what holds people back with grief uh, a lot of times is guilt. And that could be, yeah. I've got a lot of people I work with that have been sexually abused and there's a lot of guilt and shame with that. And, yeah. you know, I have a, 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 some male friends of mine that have come out in their fifties, you know, that have now run nonprofits and stuff that were sexually abused. And it's like, you know, that's a tough, that's a, that's a tough one to deal with because I can't relate to that. That never happened to me, but yeah. if it did, there's certainly different ways to deal with that than say losing a child or losing a wife or losing a parent or losing a sibling. It's like, I don't know. I I've got this, I've got this desire to kind of build this war chest of tools to give to people to get them to, and maybe one, like I use this all the time. Maybe one tool is, is religion and, and God. Maybe, maybe that's the thing that's going to get you to shut that chapter and rewrite your new chapter of your book of your life. Maybe it's exercise, you know, maybe it's mm -hmm. sobriety, maybe it's clarity journals, you know, I, yeah. maybe it's everything together. It's not just one thing. And mm -hmm. that's my exploration mindset is that I, I'm, I'm certainly not on, on this earth to tell people, explain people the right way to live your life, I can certainly explain to you the wrong ways. I know that for sure. Right. I have evidence to back that up. Lying, stealing, cheating, drugs, alcohol, those are very poor ways to deal with what you're dealing with. But the ways that are right, I don't know. There's, there's hundreds of them, hundreds of them. We just got to find ways to get out of this rut that we're in and, and our society is so down and so negative and so polarized with other things going on around us that have nothing to do with us. I mean, I watched the debates during the political stuff and I, I, I haven't watched TV in two years mm -hmm. at all. I just decided that it was making me anxious. It was making me make decisions that were short term in a long-term mm -hmm. world. I was living a short term world in a short term life, but right. so I tuned all that out and, and it's really helped me. It's helped me. But I watched really good people spend an enormous amount of time on these elections. And I would look at my boys and I'd say, let me ask you a question. If whoever wins the election, that next morning, does that have any bearing with what time you get up in the morning, how hard you work that day, how much you care about people, how much you do good? In that one 24-hour day after the election, is President Trump going to have anything to do with your day? And if he is, then you're a sorry soul. If he is, you're a sorry soul. He has nothing to do with what I do the next 24 hours. No president does, mm -hmm. you know, and, and really that's all we can do is live in the present, live in the now, live in the, for the next 24 hours. We get so wrapped up in what if scenarios and, you know, I don't know. We want to control it. Yeah, I know. And we want to control the things that are the farthest from controllable, right? Right. Yeah. And we all feel like we have control over it. I will say going back a little bit to the Facebook groups, or I don't know whether they were Facebook groups, but the groups that you yeah, were were. about. Yeah, they were. And, I, and I, okay. I love them. I like being in them. I just yeah. can't be in them long. Right. I, I had a really interesting experience. So before I had my sons, I had an ectopic pregnancy. And um, I don't know how much you know about ectopic pregnancies, but it's basically where the 
um, the embryo gets implanted in the fallopian tubes and it can't grow. You, it, it will kill you if you let it continue. Um, mm. and I joined a bunch of groups, um, like support groups around that. And yeah, the thing absolutely. that I really recognized, like they were so depressing. I know. But the reason why they were depressing is like you have a 50-50 chance of having kids naturally after you've had an ectopic pregnancy. Oh, and okay. so the people in those groups, like the 50% that never ended up having another kid or never having another pregnancy were the ones that were staying longer. Like as soon as I got pregnant nine months later, mm, I gotcha. like gave my success story and gotcha. said goodbye. You moved and on. And I moved on and hmm. I imagine even though like, I, I feel like I'm certainly not comparing an ectopic pregnancy to losing a like grown adult, yeah, like a, a child, yep. Yep. <laughs> but I think that the people that haven't been able to move on in whatever way are the ones that stay in that, those groups the longest. They are the ones mm -hmm. that need the help, but also are less likely to be able to access the help. Um, mm -hmm. because they are stuck and, and I don't know, like it's, I haven't dealt that much with, I've only had one person I know that's lost a child. Um, I do know a bunch of people that have lost people to suicide yeah. and, and I think that's a very similar thing because there's guilt there. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. just a whole range of emotions and, yeah. and I think that it's a similar, I think it's a similar experience where. If you move on, it's, you feel, you feel guilty. You feel like maybe like if you're living your life to the fullest, that that's somehow not honoring the person who passed and it, and yeah. it's not the case. The only way to honor the person who passed is to live your life to the fullest. The only way to honor your husband, your son yeah. is to live your life to the fullest, to let him, let his experience hurt your experience ultimately that doesn't help him you know and i think i'm sure it would make i'm sure it would make him sad or anyone i mean i'm sure like anyone who committed suicide like it would make them sad i'm sure anyone who's you know died of an overdose it, to know that that also impact negatively impacted their loved ones i mean that would actually hurt like i can i can just imagine that you know i, I mean the saying that goes in this Area, this space I'm in now, this club that I'm a member of that no parent asked to join. Uh, my wife and I certainly didn't ask to join. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you're right. There's, there's just something that, that holds you back and it's, it's, it's an addiction. It, it becomes yeah. a self-induced drug. It's like you prescribed your own drug, uh, be, by holding on. And, you know, I admire the people that have found ways to break through. And when I first went through this, when Seth died, October 4th, 2016, about a year into it, uh, my wife and I were just drinking every day and things were really, really bad. And I made this decision to quit on December 24th. At that time, I started working on my book and I met a gentleman I met on, I saw an article he had was in New York. He was in um, the Wall Street Journal mm -hmm. and his name is Steve Grant. And I thought, okay, this is great. I'm reading it. And he lost it. He lost his only two sons to overdose 20 years ago, though, five years <sighs> apart, Chris and Kelly. 
So as I'm grieving, I'm going through all this, watching, you know, watching my marriage crumble, watching my relationship with my wife, married 21 years, fall apart, trying to keep my other boys who are 15 and 13 focused because their brother was gone. My pa- parents are aging, you know, my business, you know, is doing good and everything, but I'm not active in it. And I think to myself, who am I to sit around feeling sorry for myself? This guy lost his only two sons. I have two of my three still here. Yeah. And I was like, a, it was like a, a bucket of ice water in my face. Like, Jeff, wake the hell up, dude. What, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And that was kind of my aha moment meeting Steve Grant. And I reached out to Steve. He jokes about it now. He says, man, one night I got this huge email from this stranger and it was cryptic and I didn't know what the guy wanted. And, and I, I, I have attention deficit. So I was like really direct with Steve. It's like, blah, 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 you know? And then he called me up and we talked for a couple hours and, and became great friends. And now, you know, a couple of times in this journey, I've had some really bad, dark moments where I needed to call somebody to help me get through. Sorry. Um, yeah. To help me get through some tough times. And so meeting someone like Steve, who is early in this whole journey of mine, gives me hope I'm going to meet more Steves. That there are, there are millions Steve Grants out there that I'm going to meet that in my time of need, when I need a friend, um, I can call someone that's been in the trenches with me, you know, that can relate to what I'm going through. And we all need that. So if I was sexually abused, I think it'd be great to have somebody else that went through it that I could call and say, you know, I under, it's one thing when someone says, Jeff, I, you know, I feel your pain and all that. It's another when they're saying it just rhetorically when they really mm. can't possibly understand, you know, what it's right. like to lose a wife. I mean, unless you've been there, it's hard to understand, but I didn't go with, with what you went through. I, I can't right. relate to that, but it still, it still spawns a, a traumatic event that, right. that we have to move on from. And so my, my point was, is that my podcast I'm doing, I'm meeting rock stars. I'm meeting people like you, people that have, talk about your story. I mean, you and I just met and you've already talked about some personal yeah. things. I've already teared up. I mean, we've been talking 50 minutes and this is the beauty of intimate human conversations. And this is why the podcast I, I really enjoy doing. I, I like doing it. Um, I like being guests on other shows because then I can spend a little bit more in depth about my story, but you know, what you're doing, I think is great. I, I admire the, the journal part of what you're doing. So this clarity journal, Mm-hmm. Uh, do you sell these? Is this something someone can yep. buy from you? You can okay. buy it on can, Amazon. Let's talk a little bit about what, what is in your clarity journal? What should I expect? And, uh, and how do I get one? So you can get it on Amazon. Um, and it is basically, it starts with doing a pretty deep inventory on what, what is going well in your life, what your strengths are. So that way you can have that framework. I find that when people feel stuck, they tend not to focus on the positive. They tend to focus on whatever's going wrong. And it's to get yeah. you kind of back in that place yep. of centered, like, okay, yeah, maybe it's that bad, but it's rarely that bad. You know, I mean, it's that bad yeah. right after you've lost a kid, but it's not that bad all the time. Right. And, um, and so it's to really help you, go forward from a place of power. Um, is it a daily, it's a daily, daily commitment or just kind of whenever you want to do it? It's just whenever you want it. Um, it is, it's, 
it kind of goes in an order where it starts with focusing on the problem, the, the, the good, what's going on well. And then it starts really bringing in questions to help you really pinpoint what the problem is. Because I think also a lot of times people think they know what the problem is, but as soon as they start really going deep, they realize there's a whole different problem. Um, But the idea of it is as you do it more and more, you start feeling stronger in your own ability to make this decision. You start feeling like more in connection with who you want to be going forward. Mm -hmm. And it gives you like the space to really think about it from new ways. Mm -hmm. So my favorite like we're not supposed to have favorite children. I have a favorite quote <laughs> in my book or a favorite question in my book. It is who do you envy and what does that tell you about yourself? Hmm, that's good. And I love it because you know a lot of times when we ask that of ourselves, we ask who do we admire, who who inspires us, but those people we put up on a pinnacle and we don't really feel necessarily like we can or should want to emulate. We're not worthy. We're not, we're not worthy. (laughs) Who do we envy? That really gets to who we want to be. Like if you're a podcaster, you probably don't envy a bunch of sports podcasters. If you want to be like in the self-help, health, self-help space, you know, like, and you don't even envy every single person in the space that you're in. You envy very specific people because maybe they have a style of asking questions and they just get really great speakers. Or maybe you envy them because they have some pretty amazing advertising and you love how they've monetized. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's specific. And the more you can really open yourself up to that, the more then you can actually take all that information and start creating your own authentic path because right. you don't envy every single thing about that person's life. You're not going to just like copy them. Right. But if you can find five people that you envy, all of a sudden you have this like framework of, oh, this actually means more to me than I thought it did. Like, and, and I need to explore how I would make this mine. What do you think about journaling dreams? So I will admit, I rarely (laughs) remember my dreams. I have done dream journals because, you know, back in the day, someone told me if I journaled about my dreams, I'd remember them better. But, and it was true, but it wasn't true enough that I continued. (laughs) So you didn't, you didn't get Um, any benefit out of doing that? I didn't. I mean, I think... I think there is benefit to it because I think I did get benefit to it because I, now that I'm thinking about the time that I was doing it, I had a lot going on in my life and it really highlighted that I was anxious, you know? Right. And so it was actually nicer not to remember the anxiety inspired dreams. Yeah. But I think that it's important to recognize, but that's not, that I tend to more journal about like where I am, what's going on. You know, one other piece of advice for journaling is uh I don't look back through my journals very often but I'm in the middle of a move and I've done this probably with every move is I'll pull out the box of journals and like make sure that like I want to keep everything you know when I look back at my journals from high school every single entry is about whatever guy problem I was having (laughs) and yeah you know and I think that that is kind of goes back to what you were talking about with, you know, the parents 
that have lost kids in those groups that maybe still are really in, stuck in grief and cannot yeah. access anything beyond that. Well, whenever you're journaling, it's just really important to access multiple layers and not just focus on whatever is causing you grief or stress. Because when you do, you really can't move yourself up. And so it's actually why I really like any guided journal. It helps you to move forward. Like if you're stuck, like it helps you to get break out of that. And so I don't know, maybe there's a space for you to write a journal about helping someone kind of move through grief for losing a child. Yeah, you've definitely, I'm interested in your clarity journal and I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't journal myself, but I did write a book and I do do, I did blogs for a year yeah. and my blogs were pretty long. Sometimes they were 15 minutes. I recorded them on video. Um, so they were in depth, but it was like a journal to me. It was like a personal journal. I navigated through a bunch of things, but um, yeah, I just, I, I've always wondered about the dream thing that was always interesting to me is like some dreams I don't want to remember. Um, right. and some dreams are so bizarre. I wonder what psychopath would have a dream, you know, like that. And right. so I don't want anyone to know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't want my kids you to stumble upon it after I die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, cause you don't really have a lot of say in what you dream. It just shows up, you know, it's like a, right. a movie you found that isn't your, you're like, wow. You get up and you go, why, why did I all of a sudden think of that? You know, it's like, I've had probably since my son, since our son passed away, like three dreams of him being in the dream and mm-hmm. all three, we were both aware he was, he was not here. I mean, he was gone. He was dead, wow. which is really odd. So he was like talking to me from beyond the grave and it was an odd, cause I, I, I specifically, one time I woke up and I was in mid crying. I mean, I woke up. Mm-hmm. Not screaming, but I woke up just bawling, Sobbing. you know, shaking. Yeah. So obviously, I was doing that while I was dreaming because I woke up in mid mid crying. But when I've dreamt about my wife, they've been different context. It's been more of me understanding, trying to understand why she went through. I guess I had a lot of questions, you know, yeah. um, for her, and and I've only had a, one dream like that, so. You know, and it's, it's, I'm not sure if dreams are a way for you to replay things that you wished would have happened, or if they're just your mind kind of formulating a puzzle and you've got little fragments of different memories and it kind of, your mind just spontaneously to, as you go through your phase of sleeping to rejuvenate your body, your brain just kind of haphazardly throws together these stories and like a Rubik's cube. And then you wake up and you're like, well, why was Bigfoot in my dream? You know, you're like, what the hell, you know? But anyway, I don't know where I got off on that, but I've always been fascinated with dreams. I always think that, that there's, there's this whole level of consciousness or sub subconsciousness that we, we just don't know yet. And, you know, I, I like to be learning. I like to constantly be challenging myself. This is why I have a hard time being in, in echo chamber type Facebook groups. I have a hard time just being in an organization where everybody's in the same boat and all, all we do is pat ourselves on the back and that's great for a day or two. And it's great for maybe some time when I need it, but I can't live in that space. I need to be talking to somebody that has not been through what I've been through that can get me to look at things in a different lens. Or maybe if 
if I'm agnostic, I want to talk to a Catholic, you know, if, I, if I'm mm. a Republican, I want to talk to a Democrat, you know, if, or whatever, you know, I like to always at 55 years old, if I'm not challenging myself, then I'll start dying. Yeah. I think we all do that. And you, you talked about comfort, right? When we yep. first started talking today, there you go. I mean, you get to a point where you get kind of comfortable. You've kind of made some money. You got some coin in the bank. Your health's pretty good. Then you're on cruise control. You're afraid to upset the apple cart by doing anything too outside the risk realm. You end yeah. up actually dying. You slowly, like a plant, you just, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. You really are. It's, I think it's important to like realize for yourself because I think a lot of people end up just, I mean, even if they don't have something so traumatic, they just kind of get in a rut and they don't really realize they're in that rut until it's too late. Know, it's never too, it, it's never yeah, it's really too late, but, yeah. but until they're so stuck in it that it feels like it's too late, that it feels like they wasted too much time. Then you spend um, so much time unwinding, you know, and just right. breaking bad habits. And if we can get to kids, you know, before they go down these roads. And I think that's, you know, I'm, this has been a fast hour. Thanks. Uh, amazing. <laughs> amazing how fast good conversation goes. But I think to really change the future, we have to go to the kids. We, we have to, the Dalai Lama said, if I could get every eight-year-old in the world to meditate, we could, we could rid the world of violence in one generation. Yeah. And there's something to say about that. I know, I know that's a pipe dream, but there's something to say about, you know, you, you meditated at a very young age. I, I was 51 when I started meditation. So right. I, I waited a long time, but it's been life-changing for me. But imagine if we can get to kids in yep. fifth, sixth, seventh grade, get that toolbox opened. Here's how you're going to, these are all the tools you're going to have. You, you may not use them. You may never use them, but we want you to know all these things are out there. And, you know, one tool isn't vaping. One tool is not marijuana. One tool isn't a, a pill. You know, one tool isn't uh, toxic friends. You know, th those are, those are deconstructive ways to live your life. We want to focus on the constructive ways. We want to, right. we want to build you up. And so I think we arm our kids with these toolbox, this toolbox idea I think is, is the key. And that's, you know, it's going to take 10, 15, 20 years maybe to reap the benefits of investing in kids. But if we let another generation of middle schoolers go down these roads because our own lives are dumpster fires, right. and we're, we're, we can't deal with our own lives. How the hell can we help our kids? We're going to be in trouble as a society. We really are. And, and, yeah. uh, that's the negative part of me trying to fight every day is that I don't like to think that way, but I think it's pretty clear if we don't change the way kids look at life, um, yeah, we're going to have a pretty tough time, not just as a meditating. country, but as a civilization. Yeah. I've been meditating with my kids since they were both four. That's unbelievable. Think, That's awesome. And I, and I do, I really agree with you to the teaching them because I will see both of them, they get stressed out and they will go meditate. Not every time, but That's awesome though. they don't need to meditate every time. They, what they need right. to do is be self-aware enough to know that that is a self-soothing technique that they had a toolbox. Like it's a tool in their toolbox. And I really do. I really do wish more people had access to that. I 
I think so. One thing that I would love to point out before we wrap up yeah, is that you are Steve. Like you are being Steve for other people by being open and doing this podcast. And I think that's really beautiful. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I, what gets me out of bed in the morning is knowing I'm going to meet people every day I've never met before. And that is exhilarating. You know, I mean, now I can add you to my list of friends. And as I keep building this war chest of humans that are changing my life, um, you know, people can watch this show and maybe they'll start a new relationship, you know, get on an airplane and actually talk to the person, you know, don't, don't talk their ear off, don't annoy them, but you know, talk to them, you know, share a story, uh, learn about them. Don't be so polarized with telling people about you all the time, you know? And that's, I'm guilty of that. I'm very guilty of that. Sometimes I have to just say, ask them a question about them, about them and and not so much about you, but listen, Becca, this has been great. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, How can people reach you? And again, um, Clarity Journal, it's on Amazon. We just put it in Clarity Journal and it shows up or put in your name. Yep. You can do both. Uh, My name, fortunately, is not um, super, I mean, Becca is very popular, but there's only, there's only one other Becca ribbing in the entire world. And she, last time I Googled was a black belt in Sweden. So not me. <laughs> there's, there's 20 million Jeff Johnston. So <laughs> my maiden name is Rebecca Ross and you literally would not have been able to find me. There was like a trillion right. of me. <laughs> yep. So it yep. was one of the reasons why I ended up taking my husband's name just so that I could sure. be a little differentiated. Um, and then, so you can find me at BeccaRibbing.com. That's Becca, B-E-C-C-A-R-I-B-B-I-N-G, ribbing. Um, I'm sure it's in the show notes. And Twitter, Instagram, that's where you can find me as well. Okay. Well, thank you for your time and uh, keep living undeterred and good luck with all your projects. And uh, we'll circle back and we'll chat later on. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.